Welcome to the Explores. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. In our last episode, we spent some quiet time in our New York City apartment on a lazy summer day in 1923. But now it's a Wednesday morning, and we're going to head into the office in our smartest suit and skirt set and get down to some money-making business. Grab a coffee, pull up those stockings, and shake out those typing fingers. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Erin, Sophie, Charmaine, and Valerie. My new lady presidents, Alana, Lou, and Bex. My warrior queens, Sarah, Kiana, two lovely Alexises, Amanda, Kate, Ika, June, Neve and Sloan, and Samantha. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Katie, Samara, and Teresa. And my lady pharaohs, Sophie, Laura, Kate, Kat, Cheryl, and the fabulous Courtney's. This show just wouldn't be possible without the generous support of all my patrons. For just a few dollars a month, they get each episode early and always ad-free, discounts on merchandise, full interviews with my guests, and more. They also get exclusive bonus episodes, like the Titanic episode I published a while back. In the next couple of weeks, I'll be publishing a new one about the history of women and their finances, so make sure to check that out at Patreon. Two more quick notes before we get started. Explores merchandise is finally happening. You can buy my fetching lady-centric timelines, maps, and art prints through my website, theexplorespodcast.com. Also, did you know that I published a novel? Nightbirds is a 1920s tinted fantasy about a world where magic is illegal, but there are girls who can give it to you with just a kiss, for a price. Buying Explores merch or my book are both great ways to support me but also so is being here listening, so thank you. Work, you say? It's true that in the 1920s, a huge number of women are primarily working hard in the home. How many of us are also ladies of business? Women have always worked, of course, and mostly out of necessity. But more and more of them have been pouring into the American workforce since just after the Civil War. That was when certain woman-employing industries exploded, such as the garment industry. Also, the Civil War ended slavery, which meant that black women were finally working for wages, low as they may often have been. The 1880s saw a huge swell in immigration numbers, bringing in a wave of ladies who needed to earn a crust. Decades later, in 1917, Thousands of American women entered the workforce to fill jobs left by men serving in World War I. Some of these were middle-class white women, many of whom had never worked before, and they found they quite liked being able to financially support themselves. So, when the war ended, they didn't particularly want to give it up. The 1920s bring a whole new flood of white middle-class women choosing to leave home and go to work joining up with the thousands of working-class women who are, and long have been, already there. This era sees 8.2 million women working outside the home. They account for some 20% of the workforce. And why not? After all, we've just gained the vote, giving us a flush of hope for all the things we can achieve. 
It's important to remember, of course, that just because the 19th Amendment granted suffrage for all women on paper, in practice, only white women are guaranteed the right to vote. Plenty of black women, especially in the South, are still unable to vote because of things like poll taxes and literacy tests that operate to keep them out of the game. Still, many women hope that gaining the right to vote is the first step toward helping us achieve it, especially in the form of financial independence. We are coming to understand that taking control of our finances is the key to an all-around better life. As Charlotte Perkins Gilman writes in her book, Women and Economics, we feel, The increasing desire of young girls to be independent, to have a career of their own, at least for a while, and the growing objection of countless wives to the pitiful asking for money, to the beggary of their position, the spirit of personal independence in the women of today is sure proof that a change has come. But before we jump into our workday, and the many frustrations it's bound to bring us, let's talk a little bit about our education. After all, it's only with high school diplomas and degrees that we can claim the white-collar jobs many of us are striving for. More women are starting to work in this era in large part because more of them are going to college. The quality of your 1920s education in America depends largely on your race and whether or not you live in a rural or an urban area. While this decade sees the beginning of things like after-school clubs, higher teaching standards, and elective classes, as well as the advent of the school bus, many students are also still learning in one-room schoolhouses. The progressiveness of this progressive era doesn't apply to us all. The good news is that most young girls have at least some schooling. Some 66% of white girls aged 5 through 19 do attend high school, and 55% of non-white girls. The illiteracy rate in 1920 for white adults is just 6%, while it's 23% for black adults. Still, only about 17% of Americans, both men and women, are actually graduating from high school. But that's better than the 2.5% from back in 1880. About 283,000 women enroll in institutions of higher education in 1920. That's 47.3% of all students enrolled. The percentage of women aged 18 to 21 attending college in 1920 is 7.6%. That's double the amount that attended in 1910. By 1930, 10.5% of American women will be attending. That's about 481,000. That leaves 90% of women who are not attending. So college girls are still in the minority. But it's worth dipping our toes into the collegiate waters to find out what they're like. Who are these lucky college gals? Mainly middle-class girls from families with parents who are doctors, lawyers, or professors. Most are white, but plenty of black women attend black colleges in the era. White women attend for a variety of reasons. Many simply go to have fun. Black women, though, almost exclusively attend college to earn a living, and the majority will earn their degrees in order to become teachers. College is definitely not affordable for poorer, working-class ladies. And because most really wealthy women don't need to earn a living, they don't attend in large numbers either. But going to college does become a cool thing to do for many women in the 20s. This enthusiasm for female education represents a massive change. Before the 1860s, women were not allowed to attend college. A handful of schools began accepting them in the late 1800s, and women's colleges began forming. 
State universities outside the South started admitting them after the Civil War, but that doesn't mean they were very welcoming. They certainly did not extend them invites into the medical, recreational, or physical education facilities. Those were for men only, obviously. After all, we wouldn't want to make our ladies sterile. Dr. Edward Clark, in his 1870s book called Sex in Education, or A Fair Chance for the Girls, wrote that women who studied the same subjects in the same manner as men might do their reproductive organs permanent damage. Women who went ahead and risked their baby-making bits to get an education were often bullied. They were blamed for the decreasing marriage rates and increase in divorce rates nationwide. Most university gals were told that they were destined to be <gasps> barren spinsters. When Annie Nathan Meyer, the future founder of Barnard College, told her father in 1885 that she got into Columbia University's collegiate course for women, he said, sadly, You will never be married. Men hate intelligent wives. Columbia didn't allow women to sit in on lectures, just the exams, but Annie went ahead and got her degree anyway. And then she got married. So suck on that, Dad! <laughs> Between the late 1800s and the 1920s, the college gal experienced a major rebrand. By this point, the conservatives are starting to realize that nothing they say is going to stop women from going to college. We're just flat out ignoring all the dramatic warnings that it might de-sex us, make us unmarriable, and lead to civilization's total collapse. The new woman and the flapper couldn't care less about such stodgy opinions. So educational critics change tack. They start talking about how women might benefit from higher education without giving up on wife and motherhood. Women's magazines and newspapers give the college girl a little makeover, making her more feminine and attractive. They help turn the college gal from a severe maiden trying to get her doctorate into a cute co-ed looking for a husband in poli-sci. Women can attend college and remain, well, womanly. Magazines underscore this point by focusing on the frivolous aspects of college life. Articles often feature pictures of dorms with embroidered pillows, of women attending home ec classes, and of friends hosting late-night fudge-making parties. Don't worry, Dad. We aren't spending our days reading Machiavelli. We're having pillow fights and learning to make fudge for our future husbands. We have two choices in this era, co-ed college or women's college. Many articles of the time warn that we should attend single-sex institutions, where we won't be tempted to imitate men's lives. They're considered the safest place for good girls to learn things, an assumption which proves to be dead wrong. Female students have much greater intellectual freedom at women's colleges. This is partly because many of those severe barren spinsters of the first generation are now teaching at them, and they are spreading the good word on radical feminist thought. It's also partly due to the fact that women's colleges have a distinct absence of men telling them what they can and cannot do. Free thought flourishes at these institutions. Funny how that works. That said, two-thirds of us attend co-ed schools, which enforce a much more gender-conforming curricula. Men and women have separate clubs, sports fields, and living quarters. Many of the classes we're expected to take aren't the same. And while the aims of some of these classes look the same on the face of it, they are also broken out by gender. The Cal Poly catalog from 1916 to 17 specifically states that, It offers a strong course in engineering mechanics which trains young men for life in the shops, 
power plants, and the various branches of the electrical industry. And to the young woman, it offers practical training in housekeeping and homemaking. In fact, in all phases of household arts. If you're not much into the household arts, you're going to have trouble avoiding it. We are almost always required to take home ec classes. In his editorial, The College and the Stove, Mr. Edward Bach complains that college women who can't cook stand before the world without the real knowledge that every normal woman should possess. Said like a man who should probably learn how to make his own damn sandwich. Harper's Bazaar approves, writing, We don't know what young men will do with their lives, but we do with women. We should use that advantage to plan education intelligently for them. Now that women have been brought into higher education, we are ready to move on to the improvement of family life. All colleges are expected to keep young women within accepted boundaries of morality. Many have dress codes, curfews, and rules against women smoking and drinking. Many even require they have a chaperone when going off campus, and you can imagine how popular that one is. In 1923, some of the University of Wisconsin's female students will hold mass protests against this requirement until it's abolished. Aw, are you regretting teaching us about the political process? Too bad. But participation in campus life, including parties and sororities, also allows some unprecedented freedoms. We're spending a whole lot of unchaperoned time with men, and going to what are called petting parties. What do these involve, exactly? Imagine a swingers party, except scale the activities back to some enthusiastic cuddling. These parties let us explore our sexual sides a little in a safe, albeit kind of scandalous, way. And a lot of us are taking part in them. In a study of 177 college ladies of the era, some 92% of them admit to petting or spooning at these parties. About half of all college-educated women will lose their V-cards before they go on to get married. Most of them will do so with their future husbands, but still… So what are these collegiate women doing after graduation? Most are, in fact, getting jobs. The first generation of women had to choose – uneducated wife and mother or childless, educated spinster. It tended to be presented as an either-or proposition. Curious, then, that by 1930, some 40% of working women will also be wives, and 11% of them will be mothers. It seems that whole either-or thing was kind of a lie. What? In 1928, when over 3,000 female alumni are asked if they believe a woman can successfully combine marriage and a career, nearly 75% will say yes. We are coming to see, I believe, the president of Radcliffe wrote in 1929, that marriage is essentially far more compatible with the continuation of a woman's career than has been assumed. By the 1920s, society seems to have accepted that women can have it all. Well, kind of. The majority of us ladies work for a few years after college, but we also quit as soon as we tie the knot. I mean, it's okay for single women to work, but the idea of married women doing it is still a little shocking. The overwhelming belief remains that wives should be at home. That's ignoring the fact that many married, black, and immigrant women have to work out of financial necessity, a thing the middle and upper classes just love to do. And so it becomes this big debate. Can a woman successfully have a career and a marriage? Should she even try? Sue Shelton White, a lawyer in 1926, complains of this choice. Marriage is too much of a compromise. 
It lops off a woman's life as an individual. Yet the renunciation, too, is a lopping off. We choose between the frying pan and the fire, both very uncomfortable. This debate rages on in the 1920s, except it isn't really a debate at all. Marriage has already won it. Most college women still claim they aspire above all else to the role of wife, and overwhelmingly, they choose to quit their jobs as soon as they get married. If they don't quit then, they definitely do upon having children. Society is very clear on this. If you're a wife, you probably shouldn't work outside the home. If you're a mother, you definitely shouldn't. Again, we see society imposing middle-class standards on everyone here, completely ignoring that many poorer mothers have to work to feed their children. And so, even though plenty of women are going to college, most find themselves right back where their mothers started out, at home. That transition is often incredibly jarring. Elsie Fredrickson, a Smith graduate, wrote, And while I am ready to admit that I have an awfully good time with my nice husband and my little house and my silver and my funny daughters, I feel like a hopeless slacker all the time. Unable or unwilling to join the workforce, many begin looking for other ways to utilize their degrees, either by assisting their husbands at work, volunteering, doing social work, or joining women's clubs. And, of course, there is plenty of work to do at home. But we'll talk more about the 1920s housewife life in our next episode. For now, let's get down to some business. Who are the majority of women workers? Most are from lower-income, working-class families. Most are single. But some are married especially immigrants and African-American women. White, middle-class women might be stymied by the question of how to have a career and a marriage, but black women have been doing it for centuries. More than 50% of adult black women worked in 1920. 33% of married black women are ladies of business as well, compared to only 6% of married white women. What kinds of jobs are we doing? Although World War I destroyed the myth that women lacked the physical stamina or intellectual prowess for typically male jobs, most of us are still shoehorned into occupations considered most suited to us. Nursing, for example, is over 90% female-dominated, social work around two-thirds female, and elementary and secondary school teaching three-fourths. The top occupations for the ladies in the 20s are domestic service, aka maids and servants, teachers, stenographers and typewriters, clerks, farm laborers, laundresses, saleswomen, bookkeepers and cashiers, cooks, and farmers. By 1930, this list will look very similar, with two notable changes. First, laundresses will drop to spot number 10, thanks to the advent of the affordable washing machine. This change will affect mostly black women, as two-thirds of the black women employed in the North work as either maids, domestic servants, or laundresses. These positions are often the only ones open to them, which they take up despite its many detractions. The second notable change is that in 1930, the top occupation for women will no longer be domestic service, but working as an operative aka women working in factories, usually in apparel or textile manufacturing. Some of these jobs have always been around, but the 1920s sees the rise of a few new occupations that attract women in droves, namely the professional or white-collar jobs that involve office or clerical work. 
Clerical work grows by over 450% in the U.S. between 1900 and 1930, by which time women will hold 52% of all clerical jobs. By 1910, 77% of all stenographers and typists were women. How did we come to dominate this industry? And when did men decide they were incapable of using a typewriter? By 1900, clerks were almost exclusively men because most of the work was done in small, family-run businesses. As offices grew in size and complexity, and new technologies, like the typewriter, were invented, businesses realized that there were not enough qualified men to fill these roles, so they reluctantly began to hire women. Initially, men were dead set against employing them because they feared women would be a distraction. However will I work effectively with women swanning around being effective? But then they realized something delightful. They only needed to pay the women about half as much. Neat! They took away the bits of the job that required critical thinking, like bookkeeping, which left female clerks with the repetitive tasks they could handle, like typing. Promotions in this profession are basically non-existent. Employers like to claim that women don't want promotions. It's not in their natures to be ambitious. And obviously, we ladies don't need to be paid more because we don't have a family to support. Okay. And because these clerical positions are now considered dead-end jobs with downgraded status and lower pay, few men apply to them, and they become women's work. And I guess they are, since women are the only ones willing to do them. Men have successfully feminized clerical work, and thus we are allowed to work alongside men, no problem, as long as we stay in these non-threatening, low-paid roles. Most male employers actually prefer female clerks. Clerical work is considered something that requires a woman's touch. A female office worker is expected to dress well, have a sweet temperament, and be at her boss's beck and call without ever demanding a raise. One employer from the time writes, I pay my stenographer to work six days out of every seven, and I expect her all the while to radiate my office with sunshine and sympathetic interest in the things I am trying to do. In other words, look nice, smile, and help out the men. Clerical work becomes socially acceptable for women because it's a job that is uniquely compatible with what many expect of women's behavior. That's why these office roles are considered good for women. Employers effectively advertise them as good preparation for marriage. They argue that working for a few years after college will make us better wives rather than desex us, as many social critics fear. As one male manager puts it, It will make her a companion for a brainy man, and that is worth more than anything else. And so, in the 1920s, office work is considered the perfect job to do for a few years before a lady gets married. At least that's what all the magazines say. By 1930, 82% of clerical workers are single, and most are under the age of 25. In fact, male employers are very vocal about preferring younger, single women. Is this a recipe for workplace harassment? Maybe. Many of these same companies refuse to hire married women or require them to resign upon their marriage. The faulty logic behind these sketchy practices is that a married female employee's priority will always be her family and not her work. With one employment agent explaining, A man wants an unmarried woman of attractive appearance. A married woman's attitude towards men who come to the office is not the same as that of an unmarried woman. 
by which I assume he means she isn't as interested in putting up with nonsense. This attitude justifies the limited training, scanty promotions, and poor pay clerical women receive. It's convenient for employers to maintain the narrative that these jobs are just a temporary pit stop, not a permanent career choice, rather than simply paying their female employees an equal wage. This all sounds deeply suspect to our modern ears, but being an office girl is actually a dream job for many in the 20s. Popular imagery glamorizes the life of office girls. It becomes the emblem of exciting middle-class womanhood, getting outside the house, using your college degree, working alongside men in suits, and collecting a paycheck. It's independent and it's sexy, even if the work is boring and the check is pretty small. Clerical work is also appealing because it is better paid than most work available to women, and it has better job security and higher social status than, say, being a maid. And unlike factory work, it's mental, not manual labor, with a safe, clean working environment and shorter hours. That all sounds pretty good, right? Right. Except these jobs aren't open to everyone. Because popular culture portrays clerical jobs as desirable roles for young, educated white girls, that's exactly who ends up getting them. Clerical workers need to be literate and numerate, so many businesses require a high school diploma, a college degree, or some sort of commercial school training. These requirements exclude many black and immigrant women. Similarly, although telephone operator is one of the fastest-growing positions of the era, there are over 170,000 female operators by 1920, black women are largely kept out of the game. Immigrant women are also excluded because many have accents, and operators are expected to have perfect elocution. So, you know, it's good work if you can get it. What if you don't want to be a clerical worker? What other careers are open to you? The glamorous few are working as silent film stars, dancers, and musicians, some of whom we'll talk about in future episodes. Writing is probably the most socially acceptable choice, and there are many female writers in the 20s who have pretty brilliant careers. Gertrude Stein, Zora Neale Hurston, Edith Wharton, Zelda Fitzgerald, and Dorothy Parker are amongst the most well-known. Of the nine Pulitzer Prizes for Fiction awarded in the 20s, five will go to women. Journalism is still largely a boys' club, though, with most female journalists relegated to the advice columns or the society beat. Elizabeth Merriweather Gilmer is a notable exception. She begins her career covering murder trials as a crime reporter before becoming wildly popular for her advice column, Dorothy Dix Talks. By the middle of the 20s, her hot takes on marriage and home life make her the world's highest-paid writer. While teaching is a female-dominated profession, the world of academia is still largely controlled by male deans and professors, who enjoy denigrating their female co-workers with gems like this one. They are forever housewives or society matrons. The female dimension of their personalities is always dominant. Even in the most formal academic situations, they behave more like housewives than skilled professionals. Most of them shy away from any duty or involvement that might interfere with family affairs. Hmm. What I'm hearing is that they're just better than you in multitasking, and they throw a better workplace party. But okay. <laughs> Rather than work with sexist colleagues at co-ed universities, many professors prefer to teach at women's colleges. 
Interestingly, many black co-ed colleges actually have more black female professors than male ones. There is a massive shortage of teachers for black public schools in the South, which are incredibly underfunded and overcrowded due to segregation laws. Thus, many black women seek out higher education, hoping to become teachers. By the 1930s, they have actually become the majority in most black colleges. Many of these women will go on to teach in local schools in their communities, but some will continue on to receive their doctorate and become professors. One of these is Lucy Diggs Slow, who becomes the first dean of women at Howard University in 1922. Slow was also the first black woman to serve in that position at any university in the U.S., and she held on for 15 years. She helped found the National Association of College Women, the Association of Advisors to Women in Colored Schools, and the Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, the first sorority founded by black women. She was an outspoken leader for black female education, spoke out about gender-based salary discrimination, and demanded equal living conditions for women at Howard. Lucy was also a queer woman. She and her partner, Mary P. Burrell, a playwright and educator, lived together for 25 years, and their home became a salon for many prominent black activists. Do we all want to be friends with Lucy? Yes, I think we do. Other female scholars prefer fieldwork to teaching. Take Harriet Chalmers Adams, who spends years exploring South America, publishing tales of her adventurous exploits in National Geographic. She once remarked, I've wondered why men have so absolutely monopolized the field of exploration. Why did women never go to the Arctic, try for one pole or the other, or invade Africa, Tibet, or unknown wildernesses? I've never found my sex a hinderment, never faced a difficulty which a woman, as well as a man, could not surmount, never felt a fear of danger, and never lacked courage to protect myself." Mexican-American botanist Ines Mexia wholeheartedly agrees. She spends the 1920s traveling all over the Americas and eventually discovers around 500 new plant species. In 1928, anthropologist Margaret Mead will publish her renowned book, Coming of Age in Samoa. After receiving her PhD from Colombia and traveling to Samoa to study the behaviors of tribal women there. Unfortunately, there are fields that, while technically open to women in the 20s, are still incredibly difficult to pursue. Elizabeth Blackwell became the first woman to graduate from medical school in America way back in 1849. But by 1930, only 4.4% of physicians in the U.S. will be women. They have little chance, given that medical schools impose a quota. Female students can take up no more than 5% of a class, and few hospitals accept female interns. If you want to be a lawyer, you're out of luck as well. By 1920, all states admit women to the bar, and many graduate from law school, but most firms refuse to hire them. In 1920, only 1.4% of lawyers are women, and most are forced to join their husbands' or fathers' practices. The same holds true for many fields, such as business, law enforcement, government, and STEM. Colleges have no problem issuing women degrees in these areas, but employers consistently refuse to take them on. But every now and then, a woman does break through. Edith Clark becomes the first professionally employed female electrical engineer in the U.S. in 1922. She's also the first woman to graduate from the Electrical Engineering Master's Program at MIT. Watch your step, ladies. There's some broken glass up in here. 
While women like Edith Clark might have achieved their dreams at work, we ladies have to fight tooth and nail to climb in a career job because society, aka men, are not so happy about it. As banker Elizabeth Cook writes, They have a terrific fear that women will eventually take the place of men. Typical of the period, one 1925 Newark newspaper article reads, Away goes another man's job. She's the first of her sex to hold a Senate position. No congratulations, then? Just shade. There are men who try hard to gatekeep what they see as their jobs. For example, court reporters are nearly all men, though stenographers are nearly all women. The skill set is exactly the same, but court reporting is more prestigious and higher paying. How do the men try to keep the women out of it? By claiming they can't handle the pressure of a courtroom. And that... The testimony is so revolting that the courts will not permit a woman to be present. How convenient. Other excuses aren't so precious. Sometimes employers refuse to hire women and simply blame it on the toilets. Public restrooms aren't officially gender-segregated until 1927, and there aren't that many for women. They're considered unnecessary in many offices and factories. Even after 27, most buildings have far fewer women's toilets than men's. So, we're gonna have to leg it several floors away from our workstations just to use the necessary. Better not to hire women at all if it means having to turn a gents bathroom into one meant for the ladies. We can't hire a girl, Kevin. Where will she be? Informal discrimination practices like these make things difficult, but formal discrimination is even worse. Some states, like Michigan and Ohio, pass so-called protective laws banning women from jobs that have been deemed too dangerous for them. It becomes illegal in these states for women to become taxi drivers, pool hall workers, or bowling alley employees, all of which are positions that necessitate coming into frequent contact with men late at night, which, as we all know, might compromise our virtue or lead us into lives of sin. It's interesting that the danger these laws are trying to protect us from is men, who can't be expected to control themselves if women are all up in their late-night business. Ironically, the one form of protection women workers definitely do need won't exist until decades from now. Legal protection for pregnant workers won't come around until 1978 in the U.S. In the 1920s, most employers will just fire women when they find out they're pregnant, anticipating a loss in productivity. In a desperate attempt to keep their jobs, some will try to hide their conditions. Advertisements for maternity clothing feature loose styles that they say will help women be entirely free from embarrassment of a noticeable appearance during a trying period, and presumably will help them keep their jobs for longer. <laughs> When it comes to our money, the right to make it and to keep it, we 1920s ladies are often at the whim of men. Whether or not you can legally open a bank account depends entirely on the state you live in, whether you're married or single, and the color of your skin. Most banks view us as less viable candidates for credit than our male counterparts, and they discriminate accordingly. Good luck applying for credit without a man's signature in this decade. We'll talk more about the history of women and their money in an upcoming bonus episode, but I can't let this moment pass without talking a little bit more about our 1920s rights. It might seem like, like it or not, being married means more rights for the ladies of this era. But when it comes to our freedoms, being married can present more hindrance than help. 
Single women can get a passport with their maiden names, but married women are issued a joint passport with their husbands, which refers to them as the wife of their husband's name. And get this, before 1922, if you married a man who was not an American citizen, you automatically lost your own citizenship and were declared an enemy alien. Imagine how fun that status was during World War I. Similarly, many states ban married women from holding government jobs, and the majority of school boards refuse to hire married teachers. On job applications, telephone companies seeking new operators ask women whether or not they have their husband's permission to be working. Clearly, there is progress still to be made. Enter the Women's Bureau, a federal agency established in 1920 to promote the rights and welfare of working women. It investigates working conditions in a variety of industries, gathers stats, and publishes reports on everything from wages to working hours, which helps shape state and federal policy. The Bureau is directed for 24 years by Mary Anderson, a Swedish immigrant who started her career as a factory employee and trade union leader, fighting for safer working conditions and higher pay. Under Mary, gender-based minimum wage laws are enacted in many states, much to the chagrin of the National Women's Party, who reject the idea of a minimum wage law for women in favor of their Equal Rights Amendment. The Women's Bureau is also in favor of those gender-based labor laws, aka the protective laws we talked about earlier, which Mary sees as the best way to protect women from being underpaid and forced to work in dangerous conditions. The Women's Bureau supports laws like New York's Overnight Law, which prohibits women from working as waitresses between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. Entertainers and bathroom attendants are exempt after one Anna Smith takes her employer to court for firing her from her night position in 1924. Good for you, Anna. Indeed, although the Women's Bureau supports many of these laws in the hopes they'll make working conditions safer, oftentimes they backfire. When the Massachusetts state legislature mandates a nine-hour workday for cleaning women, on the grounds that their bodies are too delicate to handle longer hours, many employers decide not to bother changing their attitudes and instead just fire them and replace them with men. The Bureau is more successful in fighting to ensure that all federal government exams and positions are open to women. They also make sure reports on the earnings gap are published. But the sad truth is that a lady's paycheck is, on average, much lower than her male counterpart. By the end of the 20s, white women will earn 61 cents for every dollar that a white man earns. Black women will earn only 20 cents for every dollar a white man earns. In factories, it's common for white men to make about 40 cents an hour, while white women make 25 cents for doing the exact same job. The idea, of course, is that men deserve more money because they have to support a whole family on their income. Even Henry Ford, who pays his women pretty well, all things considered, has a sexist reason for doing so. I pay our women well so they can dress attractively and get married. Thanks, I guess? Part of this inequity has to do with the fact that labor unions help men negotiate for higher wages, but many of them refuse to allow women to join. When unions do allow it, they often don't take their labor issues seriously. In 1927, when Anne Washington Cratton, a union organizer, gets arrested during a strike at a factory job, the union men say, Let her stay in jail. She's all right. Let her stay until we can have a nice, quiet little executive board meeting without her. Then we will get her out. 
Ladies should stay at home. If ladies won't stay at home, let them stay in jail. Yikes. Female workers often have no choice but to turn to the National Women's Trade Union League, which was established in 1903. The Women's Bureau works closely with them in the 20s to establish shorter working hours, higher pay, and safer working conditions for all. The NWTUL pick up the slack and support female workers on strike where other unions don't. They also successfully fight for an eight-hour workday, the abolition of child labor, and the end of overnight work for women. They also establish summer schools to train female labor union leaders. Ladies helping ladies. We love to see it. The new woman of the 1920s was going to college and working outside the home in ever-increasing numbers and in a variety of fields. But she was still doing so in a society that consistently underpaid and disrespected her, and that persisted in telling her that she could no longer work once she got married and had kids. Even so, the working women of the 20s were slowly but surely destroying the idea that work would somehow desex them, as Charlotte Perkins Gilman noted dryly. If it could be shown that the women of today were growing beards, were changing as to pelvic bones, were developing bass voices, or that in their new activities, they were manifesting the destructive energy, the brutal combative instinct, or the intense sex vanity of the male, then there would be cause for alarm. But the one thing that has been shown in what study we have been able to make of women in industry is that they are women still. And this seems to be a surprise to many worthy souls. The new woman will be no less female than the old woman, though she has more functions, can do more things, has more intelligence. You said it, Charlotte. When next we meet, we're going to spend some time in our, let's call them our home offices, the place where an overwhelming number of 1920s women spend their days. We'll talk about the domestic labor and pressure this era puts on us and explore our lives as we work at home. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like The Explorers, tell a friend about it. Leave a review wherever you listen, become a patron of the show, or just shoot me a message telling me what you love about it. I always love hearing from you. You can find show notes for this episode, including a list of my resources and some pretty cool images, at my website, theexploresspodcast.com. That's also where you can buy Explores merchandise and find out more about my Patreon. You can also find me on Instagram at theexploresspodcast. Much love to Carly Quinn for her help researching and writing this episode. Couldn't live without you, Carly. Thank you to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Janae, Cecilia, Anne, Amanda, Dylan, Blake, and my brother John. Mm -hmm.